the classic relationship book, Getting the Love You Want, was just updated and re-released. And on this special occasion, we are getting a visit from the authors, Helen LaKelly Hunt and Harville Hendricks, the creators of Imago Therapy, to talk about what's been updated and to reveal some of the surprising ways that they put their work into practice in their own lives. And I'm also going to get a chance to ask Helen and Harville some of your questions submitted through the Relationship Alive community on Facebook. So stay tuned. First, just a quick reminder that the Relationship Alive podcast is my offering to you so that you can have the best relationship possible. If you're, show, if you're finding the show to be helpful, there are a few things that you can do to make an impact. The first and perhaps the most important thing is to share the podcast with your friends. Sharing in person, posting links on social media, these are all great ways to not only get the word out about Relationship Alive, but you also never know when someone might really need some relationship help, and you could be providing them with just the thing that they need to feel supported or to help them take things in a new direction. Along those lines, if you're able to take just a moment to write a review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, that really helps others find the show when they're searching for good relationship podcasts in the uh, iTunes directory. And lastly, we couldn't keep this show going without the support of our listener sponsors. Every penny counts. So to choose a donation that feels right for you, just visit neilsatin.com slash support or text the word support to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And this week, I would like to thank Timothy, Karina, David, Sylvia, Susan, Drew, Anita, Teresa, and Anne. Thank you all so much for your generous support of Relationship Alive and our mission. One of the things we're going to focus on in today's conversation is how to communicate with your partner about things that are near and dear to who you are. To help you out, I've put together a guide of my top three relationship communication secrets, one of which is based on the powerful Imago dialogues created by today's guests. It's free for you, and by implementing these tips, you'll be able to stay connected with your partner even when you are talking about something super challenging. Just visit neilsatin.com slash relate or text the word relate to the number 33444 to download the guide. And finally, before we dive in, just a quick reminder that if you're on Facebook and you haven't already joined us, come and find the Relationship Alive community, where there are more than 2,600 people gathered to create a safe space for conversations about you and your relationship. And as I mentioned a moment ago, you can also sometimes submit your questions for us to cover on Relationship Alive. Okay, I think that's it. Let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. Here on the show, we are having conversations with the pioneers of what makes relationships work well. And today's guests are celebrating the recent re-release of their classic book, Getting the Love You Want. 
a guide for couples. And along with celebrating that re-release, we are so excited to have them back here on Relationship Alive to take an even deeper dive into their work so that we're not going to reinvent the wheel. If you want to know more about things that we've talked about, we well, we have two other episodes that you can listen to. But we are going to cover some new ground today and also hopefully get some personal insights from our two esteemed guests. Their names are Helen LaKelly Hunt and Harville Hendricks. And uh, like I said, they've been here on the show before. And it's we, Chloe and I, have actually taken a workshop of theirs at uh, Kripalu in Massachusetts. And it's just always such a treat to have you back, especially to be able to celebrate with you the re-release of your groundbreaking book, Getting the Love You Want, which has created a difference for so many people. In fact, I, I posed the question in my Facebook group, um, you know, does anyone want to ask Helen and Harville anything? And I had a couple people who said their book changed and saved my marriage, saved my marriage. So I know you probably hear that all the time, but I just want to tell you there are at least a couple more people for whom that's true. Great. Thank you. So as per usual, you can download a transcript of today's episode by visiting neilsatin.com slash imago3. That's I-M-A-G-O. And it's imago3 because imago2 and imago are other episodes, episode 22 and episode 108, where Harville and Helen have joined us previously to talk about their work. Uh, and you can always text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions to download the transcript to this episode. And we have show guides for their previous two episodes. I think that's it from me. So Harville and Helen, thank you so much for being here with us again today on Relationship Alive. Thanks, Neil. We are delighted to be here with you. Thanks for having us back on. It is. Yes. We're, we're becoming a regular. You are. Yes, it's, and it's a pleasure. I couldn't think of two people I'd rather be regulars with. Oh, <laughs> thank you. How kind of you. So I'm curious for you, what... Let's just start by talking about when you were surveying Getting the Love You Want, which is such a classic... You were on Oprah 18 times to talk about getting the love you want. What needed to be revised in the book? What, what, why, the, why the new revision? And, and what were some of the main things that you felt needed to be updated from your perspective? Um, <clears throat> basically, what is in the new book as a revision and update uh, is a, a first chapter which is a uh, contextualizing of the book in today's um, a cultural environment. Uh, the first chapter sort of brings us up to date, sort of speaking to today's audience um, and, and making and acknowledging how a relationship uh, culture has changed in the past um, <clears throat> 10 years, some, but certainly a lot in the past 30 years. So, um, you know, and obviously the thing everybody is concerned about uh, is um, social media and uh, uh, iPhones and text and, you know, the, what, what is considered to be the dissolution of connecting and its replacement with technology. And so that the audience reading this would know that we are uh, speaking to, with some self-awareness, a, a new market. 
Um, so that's the major thing is to the, the major first thing is the is the social context. And the second is that since uh, 19, uh, I mean, since, yeah, since 1988, <clears throat> um, especially, and even since um, it was, um, it came out uh, a new issue, but not to modified uh, 10 years ago uh, at its 20th anniversary, um, we have made some, I th- would think two major shifts. Um one has been a clarification that connecting is um, the code word for imago. Connecting is the uh, code word for human yearning. Uh, that connecting is the sort of a. I mean, it's used ev- everywhere by everybody now. That that, that you know, even. Um, tech people and telephone people who do sales and all that you see connecting everywhere. But we posit that connecting is the nature of nature um, <clears throat> and that we are living in a interconnecting universe of which we are participants um, and that we have moved out of a, um, of a universe set up by uh, uh, Newton in which individuals were uh, in uh, were separate and independent and isolated and in competition with each other, to a new new universe in which we are not individuals and cannot live outside of relationship. So we made really clear that there's a uh, quantum physics has given us a new new view of what humanity is, what nature is, and therefore what humanity is. And we tried to bring that into an understanding of marriage. <clears throat> the basic yearning, we think, with couples is to be connected and to feel connected and to know how to sustain connection. And so we brought that into consciousness and gone all the way through the book, sort of removing the vestiges of the individual, isolated individual that was there in 1988, um, because that um, that was the uh, the foreground in 1988 <clears throat> was the self, and now we're saying the self is a derivative of con- of context, mm. and we weren't ourselves uh, conscious enough at the time uh, that we were simply espousing what was ordinary in the culture, although behind what we were doing was this unlanguaged awareness. Of, that, of interconnectivity, but now it's languaged. And then uh, we have some additional exercises at the end of the book. The part three is basically exercises that help people work with that. Uh, uh, one of them is the removal, uh, one of them is the addition of a process we call zero negativity. And Helen wants to comment about that. Um, yeah, could I could I just <clears throat> mention Please. then, in addition to what Harville has said, may I mention three things? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to add, um, uh, we have a new definition of the self that typically, uh, I'm sorry, a new definition of a relationship. What is a relationship? People think, well, Harville and I have a relationship. The relationship is Harville's and me talking to each other in our history or whatever. But our new definition of a relationship is there's Harville and then there's me, but there's a space between us. It's a space. And it's actually that space between us that determines 
how we steward that space between us that determines the quality of our relationship. It's sort of a whole new definition of what is a relationship. And second, we bring in ideas like zero negativity. And uh, and you all know the dialogue process. That helps the space between become safe so that when you're talking, you know who's talking. You know, you take turns talking. And there's a structure, but also zero negativity. And then third, we used to have a process that, oh, my goodness, we thought was going to be the best process for amagotherapy, um, which this was way at the beginning, that if people could express their anger and not keep it locked inside, just let it out, like like express, take turns expressing your anger. And it was called the container exercise, where one partner would contain the anger of the other. And not only did we recommend it to couples, but Harville and I did it all the time. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. And uh, dot, yeah, I know where dot. this is going. We had a horrible <laughs> marriage. And that was before <laughs> neuro, <coughs> the neurosciences say that with neuroplasticity and all the brain, what you focus on is what you get. And Harvin and I looked at this exercise and went, uh-oh, I think this wasn't the right thing for our couple to do, practice being angry to each other. And this is where we tossed that out and we've put in exercises only that create safety between the two and uh, help focus on what our partner is doing right instead of all the things they're doing wrong, even if there are many, 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 you just try to focus more on what your partner is doing right. And we also then have that process of what to do about the things you'd like them that you wish they did differently. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, it, it was important not to say to people, you can't have your uh, anger. What we had to say to people is you can't abuse your partner with your anger. So here is a way to talk about it so that, um, and it's not the container exercise, it's a more of a behavior change request process. Here's a way to talk about it um, so that the need behind the anger gets expressed rather than the anger becoming so toxic uh, too. Because the, the other thing we've, Helen and I have discovered, it was uh, really interesting because psychotherapists always work with memory, but somehow, there was like, well, all the memories you have are in the past. And one day it dawned on us that we're making memories all the time. And we sh and since our partners look at us and cannot not look at us through the veil of memories they have of us, uh, it's really important that you decide what memories you want your partner to have of you and then create those memories and if so, if you have a even a therapy exercise in which there's a screaming face, your amygdala doesn't care whether this was in therapy or not. It just remembers the screaming face and you may have regulated it. So so we've gotten uh, tremendously focused on um, this space between being the domain where safety is there so that you can deal with difficult issues without hurting each other. And that way you maintain connection while you're dealing with the difference. 
So I think I think the other last thing is that we have emphasized more now uh, the the need for affirmation, and that affirmation has become not just a thank you that was nice, but affirmation, sort of like Martin Buber long ago uh, in the I Vow relationship talked about to affirm another person in their being uh, is the function of the I Vow relationship. And that has um, uh, impacted me again, many years after reading Buber, that to affirm another human being, but what we've added to Buber is that when I affirm you in your being, I simultaneously experience my my being as affirmed, that the brain is a twofer. Uh, what you do for and to another person is simultaneously experienced by you. So that, um, I think nature set it up so you couldn't cheat. Because if I hurt you, I hurt me. If I care for you, I care for me. And that it works that way, that principle of simultaneity. So we've done some stuff like that in the new book. Wow, so there's so much that we just covered, so many directions to go. Um, In reflecting upon what you were saying, Helen, about anger and and realizing, you know, its effects on if you were giving it full expression, and also what you both were talking about in terms of how we've evolved from a very self-oriented theory of relationship to a very, a more relationship-centric uh, yeah. orientation, a relational orientation with the space between. Um, I'm thinking about how going through the dialogues in particular, how that helps everyone get to the hurt that's beneath that anger. <clears throat> And yeah. and how that creates safety to be able to identify with your partner, like the wounded part of your partner, as opposed to to be identifying with the part of yourself that's really angry about whatever it is they did, or um, or for them identifying with their angry part instead of by really getting in touch with, oh, this is this is how I've been hurt. And, and from there, it's like a much more generative place. You know, it would be like if your relationship space is a garden, uh, you know, to, to borrow maybe an overused metaphor, um, if you find a little plant that is, has broken in places, like you want to tend to it. You know, you wouldn't just necessarily yank it out if it was what you were trying to, to cultivate. Mm-hmm. Right, right. right. Um, and so what I think we try to do <clears throat> is um, stay away from anger as much as possible because it releases cortisol. And you know who feels horrible when cortisol is in their own body and that's that's the person being angry? I mean, you think you're you know hurting someone else, you're also hurting yourself. So we do as much what I appreciate about Harville is he has people uh, more and more in a simple way circle what my wound was from childhood, just circle it, and not necessarily re-experience it. Mm -hmm. The cathartic thing that in the 70s and 80s, psychology said to get your feelings out about your parents, what they did wrong. Like, if you express it, then you'll be getting it out of your system. 
and and you don't have to carry it locked inside anymore. Well, guess what? That theory was wrong. <laughs> uh, pri- do you remember primal therapy? Oh, by- yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. So you would buy therapy or books to lay down and lay down the foreign screen and express your anger to your parents, your, your pretend parents, and to get it out. Well, so we are realizing that that's really damaging for the brain and damaging for the person expressing it. Harville has ingeniously had ways a couple can identify the wound by circling it on a piece of paper. This wound is then a challenge from the past that they brought to the relationship. And then they circle what is the need um, that they have from their current partner now and changing an anger and frustration into a need and making a request. So we quickly accelerate someone on that path of something we that your partner did wrong. Well, you got to name it. You got to name it and maybe say how that made you feel, but say as quickly as possible what your partner should do so you'll never feel that way again. And so the whole emphasis is making a request on what you want instead of telling your partner what you don't want. Yeah, and in the dialogue process, then what we do to operationalize that <clears throat> is that um, that we'll give people the sentence stem, which when they say what their uh, frustration is, and, um, and Helen is very uh, adamant about moving from frustration to what do you want, <clears throat> and then we're giving a sentence stem as when I have that frustration, it reminds me when I was little, and people then go to the hurt. And that hurt that I go to when I say it reminds me when, when in childhood my dad was not there or my mother yelled at me or um, whatever, um, that hurt then triggers in Helen as my listening partner empathy for me instead of judgment about me. And that uh, revealing of the safety to reveal my hurt is created by the structure of the dialogue process. Because I, by the way, the dialogue process works. We finally figured out um, something that Dan Siegel said one time was, do you know why meditation works? Meditation works because the brain needs to know what's coming next. And in meditation, the brain knows you're going to breathe in and then you're going to breathe out. And there won't be any changes in that. The brain doesn't care what you're focusing on, uh, whether it's God or a mantra or, or, or your breaths or whatever. <clears throat> the predictability of what's coming next helps the brain relax. Um, and in dialogue, when I heard him say that, I thought, oh, so that's why dialogue works. Uh, the brain knows that when I talk to you, you're going to say, let me see if I got that. Instead of, what in the hell did you mean when you said that? <laughs> or, no, you shouldn't say that. So I can predict when I talk to Helen that she's going to say, if I'm getting that, uh, and rather than why are you talking about that? So th- that predictability. So in the dialogue process, you know that your partner is going to um, to check and say, and, 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 and that reminds you in childhood of, um, and I'm going to say, well, it reminds me, blah, 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 when my 
my mother wasn't there. And then she's going to mirror me. So what's happening is that she's regulating her prefrontal cortex by holding me in the dialogue process. And when, uh, when she um, asks me and what I remind you of, and I tell her about my hurt, she's then going to experience in, in, the, in the amygdala an, an emotion called empathy. And so she will get empathy uh, at the same time that I'm uh, feeling safe with expressing my vulnerability with her. And when we shift that, we then move into curiosity rather than judgment. And when we go to curiosity, we've in deepened safety. And therefore, we can talk about vulnerability uh, without fearing that somebody's going to say, well, that sucks. It's just too bad. You need to get over your childhood, which is kind of what is interesting. It's kind of what uh, the message underneath psychoanalysis is, is that, you know, you, you just you finally have to go to adulthood and uh, and give up that fantasy that you're ever. I remember my therapist now nearly 40 years ago uh, when I was in analysis saying to me, Harville, you are never going to get what you want from Helen. <laughs> you, you, you must come to terms with that. <laughs> it's like, oh, let me give you a book. I think we had, uh, um, I, no, I think this was after Getting came out that I was working with that therapist. And I said, could I bring you a book? <laughs> Getting the Love You Want, in which I take opposition to your point of view. And he said, no matter what you wrote the book, it is still an illusion. <laughs> What we have to say is, I got it from Helen. I didn't have to give up the, you can give up the desire. It's connected to your survival. It has to happen, but it has to happen with somebody with whom you are engaged, who will be present so that you can have your vulnerability and they stay in the curious and empathic place. Hmm. And partner isn't going to do it unless their partner asks, in a respectful way. Like Harville has brought his needs to me, explaining what it was like in childhood and thus exactly what he needs from me. And he and I actually work on this, not just once, but over time. And Cause I'll say, honey, I just still wanna know exactly what you wish. Yeah. If I did it perfectly, tell me exactly what it is you need from me. Um, and he'll say it to me kindly instead of saying, you never do this and you never do that. Well, that, um, what is it, I, like squelches my motivation. Mm -hmm. so it, like I get discouraged. No. But all I hear is what I'm not doing. Yeah, and disempowers so you. The power it, for a couple is to shift yeah. from judgment to curiosity and wonder to each other and shift from being critical to asking for what they want with sender responsibility. Mm. Yeah. Right. And when you say sender responsibility, you're talking about as the sender, the one speaking, the one making a request, taking responsibility for how you are making that request. How it lands. Yeah. Yes. So if your partner like sticks their fingers in their ears and goes, la, 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 <laughs> <laughs> you know, Let's say, and then you can ask your partner, you know, would you, could you coach me in how I would, I'm asking for what I want? 
could you coach me so that I could ask for what I want in a way that might make it um, something that we mm-hmm. could have healthy dialogues <clears throat> around. And just be curious about your partner when they do shut down. Were you part of the reason they shut down? Yeah. No. Yeah, and I'm thinking back to, you know, what it feels like when there is anger or disappointment in the room and the how disconnected like I could feel I can feel that cortisol and maybe the powerful um, anger response happening but in the end what I what I really want to get back to is connection with my partner and and so I love how this process creates that shift back to the ways that we open to each other curiosity understanding compassion versus staying in that shutdown place where you might be uh, making demands or lev- levying your judgment uh, yes. of the other person right I appreciate too that you're that you're using yourselves as examples a little bit and that makes me curious and you can pass this on this question if you want but I'd love to know for you what are the things that um, like if you could name something that you continually have to revisit, because I think a lot of people have this illusion that we who are talking about relationships all the time and writing relationship books, we have perfect relationships, meaning there's never conflict, there's never negativity, none of that. So I'm wondering if if you could share a little bit with like what that journey is like for you um, and, and what is the thing where you're where you might revisit you might find yourself revisiting over and over oh right that's my thing that i'm working on you want to go first i so uh, right now it's easier for me to share something that i always do wrong or get feedback that i'm doing wrong so could i start with that sure because i am so great at multitasking Mm -hmm. oh i am awesome (laughs) at it (laughs) (laughs) But when Harville is talking to me, that is so insulting to him. Mm. Like, my great gift is making him feel invisible. Mm. And I get that. And I love that when he speaks, and especially if he's excited about something, excited positive or excited negative, my job is to stop what I'm doing right there and then and turn around and be as excited as he is about something or as frustrated as he is and just be present for him as he's experiencing his feelings. And I used to um, try to fit that into my schedule but I was doing important things, and he would understand if I wasn't looking at him while he was saying something important, and blah, 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 blah. And no, you know, if he wants me to stop, wow, you know, what's, what's more important or what's more holy than getting to be present for Harville's experience of life? So um, over time, I've gotten clear that, wow, that's my number one job. Mm-hmm. So that's what... <clears throat> And uh, just, I'm curious, Helen, is there something that you've done to remind yourself so that when you find yourself, you know, Harville's sharing something with you and you're in the middle of 20 things, which you're, which you excel at, 
do you have a way of bringing yourself into presence in those I moments? Do. So when you came to our workshop, do you remember the video, the still face? I do. Yeah. Okay. So if anyone listening would look up Google online, the still, S-T-I-L-L, still face experiment. A lot of psychiatrists at Harvard and psychiatry schools all around the country conducted this experiment. And Harville had picked that three-minute video to show in our workshops. And when the mother was present for their child, when the child was looking at the world, boy, was the child happy. But the moment the child, the mother had a still face that is not animated with the child, but just still, not angry, not distant, but just a still face, the child would try to get their caretaker to like respond. Engage, yeah. Engage, engage and resonate with what the child was feeling. And in this little three minute video, the child begins to go into shock that the mother has a still face and decompensates and starts screaming and yelling, even though the mom is about five inches away. The mother is right there, but it's the look in her eye that the child is missing. It's the mother is present, but doesn't have presence. And so after Mm -hmm. watching that video for some years, I sort of woke up to the fact that, oh my goodness, why don't I practice being the mother in the still face that is the resonant face? It's like, mm-hmm. and it's a whole lot of fun mm-hmm. to do that. I am having so much fun doing my best to, when Harville might need me to drop everything, turn around and just practicing presence. Yeah, and what's interesting, but but ordinary, is that you can imagine, therefore, that I grew up with a mother who had uh, eight children plus me and no husband. He had died on a one-horse farm, and she was always busy. I have no images of her paying attention to me, none. Wow. Uh, she died when I was six, but I, in that six years, I do not have a single picture. She was a wonderful woman. When I talked to my oldest sister, <clears throat> who at the time was an adult when I was a, a, a child, uh, is the most wonderful woman you can imagine. She was kind, loving, and caring. And you look at all my family, they had to have a pretty good mother because nobody went crazy and you know, <laughs> drugs and nobody killed anybody and, and so forth. Um, but I was the last, and my primal memory of her is trying to get her attention and failing. So when I walk into the room and Helen is busy at the stove, at the fireplace doing, you know, what my mother did, but hers is on the, usually on the phone, that memory pops in. I'm not going to be able to get her attention. So Helen has a practice of when I walk into the room, she'll take the phone away and check and see if I want to talk to her. Or or the other thing is on on Helen's side is that Asking her is now a good time to talk uh, is a way of, of establishing her availability. Uh, and, she, and she can say no. So we've moved out of, you got to always respond to me when I walk into the room to, I can ask, are you available for a question? 
uh, right now, and she can say no and 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 come back to it. Come and back to and it later. the key thing for me <clears throat> in terms of being vulnerable yeah. is a big request I've asked is you if you would coach me before presentations. Yeah. So, so that, that's that, a childhood that thing. Helen so. did not grow up <clears throat> being empowered by the people around her to function. He's, he's such a great speaker. Oh, wow. I mean, he just is so good. And I don't mind not being as good. I just want the memories of him coaching me. Mm. So mm. that's been our thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, and when you say that, I just, like, I get the feeling of what that, must be like to be supported by him to have all that attention and and yeah. encouragement coming from him exactly exactly yeah. except right now she's so good on the stage that people there's a lineup with her at the end of the workshop and i'm over putting away my computer and nobody's talking to, <laughs> me, talking to her <laughs> that's how good my mentoring has been <laughs> But I get that. And, but that was you were not empowered as a child. Mm -hmm. And so to say, here's how you could do that. Uh, practice projecting, uh, uh, clear up this concept, uh, make eye contact when you're talking, move around. Uh, anything that makes it charismatic, because speakers um, who've done it on stage a long time know how to hold an audience. And you don't hold them by standing there lecturing. Uh, out of your throat, you hold, you engage them, and so she's you do that with such magnificence. Well, you saw her, yeah, uh, do that with such magnificence. So, so, but the thing that's impo important is we have um, talked about the the new book. I think we finally clarified that healing is a medical term, and that it applies to the body getting well of a wound. But psychic healing, memories, are not healed, ever. Um, that they are always uh, resident in, the, in the, the emotional ones in the amygdala and the event ones in the hippocampus. They're always there and can be activated by a behavior. So that what we work on is creating a relational environment in which we don't trigger the memories. Mm. And if we do... Uh, we have a repair process in which we'll quickly uh, put those memories back in the background, but they're not going to go away. Uh, we used to think when we were working out of the medical model for uh, for psychotherapy, which came from Freud, and he was a physician, so it, it, he did he did what he knew how to do. But all emotions were a disease and had to be treated. And now we know that emotions are triggered by memories. And that those memories will always be there. And what you wanted to see when we talk about creating new memories to replace the old memories. But when the old memory is triggered, that you move quickly in. And all old memories are triggered by the absent caretaker, whether they are missing in their bodies or missing emotionally, although they're in the room. They are not present to the child. And that, like that baby in the still face experiment. Not being able to get the resonant face is terrifying. So if we we know that all the time we have to live with that kind of conscious intention that we want a play our relationship to be safe enough that we don't trigger each other's painful childhood memories. And when we do, we move to repair quickly. 
Helen and Harville, we're going to take just a moment to talk about this week's sponsor. And they have a special offer for you as a Relationship Alive listener. Now, getting the love you want is a classic with so many useful ways to transform your relationship. So you will definitely want to have it in your personal and relationship development library. That being said, sometimes you don't need to read the whole book to get what matters most and grow and transform. And in those moments, today's sponsor is perfect for you. Their name is Blinkist. When we're overwhelmed with work and other aspects of life, it can be really challenging to be growth-oriented and to do a lot of reading. It can be just tough to fit it all in during a day. However, the Blinkist app will help you change and take charge of your own growth and expand your knowledge in a way that fits into your busy life. Blinkist is the only app that takes the best key takeaways, the need to know information, from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. That way you can drop in and get the main points of the books quickly, which is a great way to feed your personal growth and development. With over 8 million users, Blinkist has a massive and growing library from self-help to business to health to history books. As I've mentioned before, Blinkist has been perfect for me because I read so many books for the show and Blinkist has been a great way for me to take a quick but deep dive into a book, especially if it's something that interests me, but I don't have the time to commit to reading the whole thing. So when I want to read a business book or something about politics or just get to know a book better, I can decide whether or not I want to pursue it more deeply by turning to Blinkist and checking it out. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for you. Go to Blinkist.com slash alive to start your free seven-day trial. You can check out all the books that you've been wanting to read at a fraction of the time. Again, that's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash alive to start your free seven-day trial. Blinkist.com slash alive. And now let's get back to our conversation with Helen LaKelly Hunt and Harville Hendricks. Can you talk for just a minute about, um, and I want to make sure we don't lose sight of you also offering, if you have something to share about your own personal thing that, that you revisit in the relationship that you've been working on, Harville. But before we do, I'm curious, um, how how do you encourage reciprocity in a relationship? I think particularly in the process in this in processes that require a lot of generosity of like really listening with intent and being present and helping someone through a, a hard moment and being willing to come back to the table and repair all of these important things. There's a danger that people perceive, which is like, well, I'm always giving and, or I'm always willing, but my partner isn't necessarily. So I'm just wondering if you have some gu guidance to offer around how to encourage partners to both be able to come to the table. Yeah. Do you have a comment about that? Well, I'd, I'd have to think about that because I'm thinking that, uh, that I'm not associating that with us. Right. Well, Actually, we actually did when we were at a low point. Yeah. We created a calendar of on-duty and off-duty days where um, yeah. 
before going to bed at night, one person was in charge of making sure that they and their partner were connected before they turned out the lights. And the next day, it was their partner's job to make sure they were connected. Mm -hmm. And that was something that really brought us both in charge of participating in making sure the relationship was, was healthy. Because in most relationships, one person might be a little bit more active doing that. And if one person is more active, the other might sort of go, well, it's their job to do that. Mm. <laughs> or, or might withdraw. Every relationship has a turtle as well as a hailstorm. So these on-duty, this calendar that invites a couple to co-create accountability for reciprocity is a beautiful way mm-hmm. that, um, you know, no matter what, you have to be connected before you go to bed. You know, <laughs> other, you know the other person on their, on their on-duty day has to figure it out. Yeah. And and I, I think we've talked about that some. I'd see that was a really good training process. But I don't experience now you and me saying, well, I did five things that were positive and you didn't do any, that we're not in the tit-for-tat consciousness. Uh, we do have a ritual every night that before we go to bed, we give each other three appreciations. Um and rather than point out three things that we did wrong when dealing with the zero negativity mm-hmm. calendar, that we moved moved that out. We and, both are really responsible for the relationship these days. Yeah, but yeah. if someone if it's one sided, that's a suggestion. Yeah, and, yeah. and so yeah. that that really is an amazing structure that you have a day on which you you are the one who is going to contain. Uh, whatever is chaotic, and the next day you're off duty. Uh, what we discovered, though, was we like the days on duty better. Um, <laughs> it felt better to be on duty. Yeah, because you're working out of your prefrontal cortex, and you're not into your reactivity. And if you do feel reactive, you know, I'm I'm on duty. I can't drink, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, so you go into the other piece, and you wind up feeling better, because you have not gone into your negative emotions. And then after a while, we were both feeling better so that we kind of made that we're both on duty every day uh, for the quality of our relationship. And and given that, we don't have a whole lot of things to clean up. Um, and when we do, I think the I think our I think the thing I would say about that is that we have got this repair process down. Uh, so that if we one of us does mess up, we just go fix it so in that's the next the five zero, or ten minutes. That's the zero negativity process. That's the zero negativity which process. Which Harville could talk about for a long time. <clears throat> you do a better job at that. But. No. Anyway. Let's see what, see what Neil wants. Yeah, well, I would definitely love to have you share that, but is there something, Harville, in particular that you'd like to share about something that that you've had to revisit in your relationship with Helen that that's kind of your thing that you're that you've been working on um, and maybe a struggle that is less and less of a struggle over time well I'm I'm thinking about that I think that the thing I'm my growth edge is to listen until Helen finishes her sentences 
that I interrupt her and that that triggers her invisibility uh, vulnerability and to because uh, I'm <clears throat> my brain quickly uh, is listening and has something to say to add to it or an alternative um, and I rationalize it by well it's it's a conversation it's not you know a dialogue um, we're, we're we're playing tennis we're not uh, having a dialogue but um, but but all interactions are uh, and should be dialogical and I I still work on uh, as the uh, co-creator of all of this uh, implementing it all the time I would think that's would that fit with you your view of my growth edge what what else would you see as my growth edge well, I think me finishing sentences yeah, finishing sentences one. stop being interrupted <laughs> and deflected and I said the coaching <clears throat> and the coaching because I think when you were little nobody listened to you in 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 the household the family the parents. I didn't talk. <laughs> well, and you I didn't, didn't talk because nobody was listening. Right. <laughs> that was not important. So, so interrupting her, uh, and but um, re and and also um, appreciations to notice what um, what excellent things more than just the ritual at bedtime. That during the day, I'm trying. I'm trying to trying to grow into awareness that the way she just handled that phone call was amazing. And to say that instead of, well, we got another task done. <clears throat> that's the affirmations process to be engaged in that. Cause I, cause I grew up on the farm and where I grew up on the farm was uh, people didn't spend much time thanking you. Uh, it was like, did you milk the cow? Uh, and then they didn't say, wow, what a good cow thing you did. <laughs> I just wonder, did you do it and did you feed the horse before you came in? Uh, and all those uh, <clears throat> so affirmations. Appreciations was not a part of that. And appreciations affirmations. and affirmations create safety. Yeah. And that's <clears throat> bottom line. <clears throat> yes, absolutely. And they then empower you. You know what you did. That made a difference. And if you do something, like you did feed the cow or milk the cow real well, uh, and nobody noticed it, then you don't know whether you did it right or not, or if you even want to do it again. But if somebody says, good milking, wow, see the horse was fed, good job. Um, that's the kind of um, affirmation, appreciation that becomes spontaneous rather than just the uh, ritual at the end of the day. Yeah, and that, that reminds me too of John and Julie Gottman's work around having that, that ratio of you know 20 to one positive to negative interactions yeah. in, in normal day-to-day -day life. Um, they were just on the show talking about the importance of cultivating, cherishing in, in their relationship as well. So it makes yeah, sense like that the, you'd be on the same page. Yeah. Yeah. John and I were talking one time at his home on the island in the in San Juan Islands where he lives. We'd gone out there to visit him. And um, at the time, there was some kind of... Um, we're not sure we're on the same page and um, and so forth. But he pulled me aside and he said, you know, I haven't been here for two days and talking so forth. I think we're basically all doing the same thing. We just kind of phrase it differently. And I thought, good. That means <laughs> <past> your approval. <laughs> it yeah. does feel and good. I love the word cherishing. The, the cher I love that word, cherishing. And I think the um, repair process 
we let, we prefer to call it the reconnecting process because repair seems so mechanical. But yeah. the, the the methodology of that, the quickness of repair, is a sign of a healthy relationship. Is another thing they threw into the into the world uh, that we have picked up and said that's really important. Is how how quickly you get this thing fixed and get back on the road. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about your approach to repair um, that you've brought up a few times? Well, yes. Um, we, um, <clears throat> the zero negativity is a pledge that you make. And we know that because of the wiring, the, the, um, the wiring of the brain to be paranoid means that uh, to change your brain to um, affirmations is um, goes it, it is back changing the evolutionary patterns so big, <clears throat> so that when you commit to zero negativity, you're going to blow it. Um, and we say to people, we're telling you a great thing to do, but we know you're going to have difficulty doing it. So let's just say that up front. But it's okay if you blow it, if you repair it, um, and and because when you blow it, you'll disconnect. And what we want you to do is reconnect, which we like the word connecting. So what we, there's a range of repairs. And one is to say, could I do just do that again? Uh, could I send that again? Or Helen might say, would you be willing to send that in a different way? That doesn't sound negative to me. So the redo process. And, the, and then a sort of parallel to that is, if I'm not clear what she wants, I could say, will you model it for me? So I can see how you want me to look, the tone of voice you want me to have, the words that you want to say. And the agreement is that we will let our partners teach us. Um, then the third thing is that we discovered some people don't need to do all that. They just need an apology. I'm really sorry that I had that tone of voice. Uh, Helen likes apologies. I like behaviors. Um, and because when I grew up, uh, people who apologizes just hit you again. So apologize mean nothing to me. Mm. But if stop hitting me, and do something different. So I then we'll have to ask her something she wants. A hug, we both respond to hugs. Sometimes just hug me or look me in the eye. A connecting behavior of some sort may repair it quickly. And then if, however, the uh, the memory was, that was a real uh, sensitive one, uh, we have the option of going into a full dialogue and talking about how that uh, negative thing I experienced from you triggers this memory for me so that she can know or I can know that and get curious can know that I need to go to empathy and to holding that. And then we have a really complicated one. If it's really difficult, I may need more than empathy. I may need an actual request for behavior change. And we call that the behavior change request process. And that means we go through a process to arrive at a behavior that I need to have from you so that I can uh, predict my safety with you. And then Helen will agree to initiate that behavior, or if it's on my side, I will initiate that behavior so that the repair, but that's when it's really deep. Right. And yeah. I remember uh, in going through that, that um, dialogue in your workshop, uh, how nice it was, I believe you have us come up with three or four options. Right. So it's not just like, this is my request, 
right. honor it, you know, please honor <laughs> it. But here are a few options for you. And any one of these things would would satisfy me or would feel like a step in the right direction. And I yes. feel like that's important. It really is important because if it's just one thing, here's my hurt, here's what I want, uh, it sets up a power struggle instead of a collaboration. But if, if they're, uh, I'm, I'm hurt, three things, any one of three things would help with that, then I get a choice about which one of those I can do, which one I will do, and which one will not stretch me at all if I did it. And so I'll pick one that's challenging because I want to grow. But if I have choices, then I can participate. But we found that if I don't give you a choice, you're going to trigger your resistance. Then even if you did something, it wouldn't matter because the psychological energy of generosity is not there. But if I have a choice, I can be generous. If I don't have a choice, I'd be resentful. Right. We don't want a therapeutic process that creates resentment. Speaking of, I, I'm curious about the way that Imago handles shame. I could see, like, for instance, you take the zero negativity pledge and one person or the other dumps something toxic into the relational space. It happens. Mm -hmm. So how would you want to handle, like, the shame that one might feel from having done that? Or... You know, we're in the the getting the love you want conversation. A lot of people have shame attached to their desires and to the very thing that they want to ask for it might bring them shame to ask for it. So I'm just wondering if you have a way of holding that. Well, to me, the shame is dealt with by holding the request or or holding the failure. Uh, so you uh, that you I think that the the reparative or the healing or the reconnecting process always is uh, that if it's guilt uh, that you mirror back it so you're feeling guilty about that uh, so uh, shame so that was shame felt shameful to you I'm getting that is there more about it so that I don't shame back or guilt back <clears throat> but once a person has become has had their um, uh, and you know those emotions are all connected to developmental processes. If you're always into guilt, uh, you're probably not into shame. You're, you're into, you did bad behaviors. But if you're into shame, which is an earlier developmental issue, you're into not being a good person. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but in either case, they are all created by the parent who does not hold the child's uh, behaviors and experiences at the time. And when those are held without judgment, but with curiosity, that for us is what restores connection, whether it's shame or guilt. It's, it's, I, I, don't, I haven't been able, I know there are shame books and guilt books and all kinds of things, but as I have read the literature for the past 40, 50, nearly 60 years now, uh, underneath all of those things, there's something that repairs everything. So it's not a shame repair. <clears throat> what repairs shame and guilt and anger and all of that is presence. Yeah. If I can present to you without judgment and hold you with curiosity, something will happen inside of you around that transaction, whether it, whatever it was, guilt or shame, and it will be mitigated by the fact that it's not repeated in our interaction. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
I am so appreciative of your your time and wisdom again. I just want to remind everyone that if you want to download a transcript of this episode, we've had so many valuable action items that and takeaways from this conversation. You can visit neilsatin.com slash imago3. That's I-M-A-G-O-3 after their Imago therapy and Imago dialogues. And uh, and I also encourage you to listen to our first two episodes together, episode 22 and episode 108, where we go into more detail about um, how to do dialogues in the structured way that we've been referring to today. And also we talk a lot in, our, in episode 108 about creating lots of positive uh, force in your relationship. Before we go, I just... I. I want to mention something that feels super important to me, and it's kind of funny that we waited until the end to chat about it, but one of the most important changes that I noticed in the book, along with all of the wonderful updates to the content that you mentioned, um, is that now, Helen, your name is also on the cover of the book as an author. And, uh, and I just want to acknowledge that um, there, you write about it beautifully in the preface, both of you, about your process of... Um, of how that came to be. Do you want to give us just like a quick snapshot of that now? Cause I know a lot of people ask about that and, and, and why for so long, Helen, your name wasn't on the cover at when you cl so clearly were, were involved in creating this work. Mm -hmm. Well, um, thanks for asking and maybe I'll go first. Okay. Um, so, <clears throat> um, I, look back now and um, am surprised at my own disassociation mm. uh, of, of the idea of being on the cover. Um, at the beginning, I vehemently fought against it because I had a prominent last name and was from a family that had sort of not world recognition, but in certain industries, world recognition. <laughs> Like my last name is known around the globe and in certain places, certain industries. And, um, and Harville was a sharecropper son. And both parents had passed away by the time he was six. He was the youngest and was almost sent to the orphanage. So while I saw his brilliance, I didn't think he, his last name. Well, I just sort of wanted um, this chance to have the theory so powerfully presented in this book, I just felt like it should be his name. It was his idea to focus on this book, and so much of the content was him, and I was the ideal number two for him, we both think, but I wanted his name on it. And But I just kept, um, once he became so famous, I really missed that I wasn't recognized very much at all, mm. but I never dreamed I would be on the cover, and that was Harville's idea. But um, from the very beginning, there was some sort of dissociation that women have that I was a part of, that um, I had been, in fact, I recently wrote a paper on all of the things I did to prepare myself as a therapist before I met Harville. I got a master's in counseling psych, went halfway through a PhD in clinical psych. I love this stuff but I just sort of dissociated from it. And uh, it's a tremendous 
joyful, beautiful thing that Harville had the idea of including me and that I get to be visible as his number two. Yeah. Well, and the uh, the reason her name is on the cover uh, is is that she is the co-creator of Imago. The first few sentences in the first year in 1977 when we met, the conversation uh, led to getting a love you want. And Helen uh, facilitated uh, finding a writer, f- facilitated the research, all kinds of things. Plus the conversation about content uh, was there and the contribution like Helen invented a dialogue. It was a, her idea to do that structured process. Zero negativity came from Helen. Um, and so I pick up a lot of things that she would say. And since I'm a sy- systemic thinker, I then build that into the system, but uh, so a lot of pieces in the system. I take full credit for the structure of the system, but not for all of the limbs on the body of the system. So it was clear that we are uh, co-creators with equal and unique contributions to it, and and that Helen uh, refused to have her name. She was offered to have her name on in 1988, and she said no. Um, but after a while, it began to agitate both of us that there was something wrong with this um, public recognition of me, part of which could be explained because I was on the Oprah show, but that was also part of the problem that Helen not being on the cover didn't get on the Oprah show. So mm. I'm, the, I'm the visible person, and she's the supportive, supportive housewife. Even if she does have a famous name, I suddenly became... Uh, is well known, if not better known, than her last name. <clears throat> so it began to just look like that. So when we got to the 30th, it, it occurred to me, and then I had this epiphany that it's not like a deserved thing. Uh, she deserves to be on it, or, or I want to be generous. It was. It dawned on me one day that I colluded with the cultural a devaluation of women. And then I married to one of the most powerful women in the world who was a co-creator of a book and she's invisible around one of the things she loves the most. Helen colluded too. She's a feminist. She's the sec- probably ranked as the second most influential feminist in America in terms of her contribution to women. But somehow she said disassociate herself from uh, not from that work, but from our work. So it dawned on me as we were getting ready to write the preface to the new book that <clears throat> it was like an epiphany. Wow, look look at this. Can you imagine if we colluded with the, with the cultural trance, how could we understand everybody else's collusion with the cultural trance? No wonder it's so hard for women to get the right jobs and break through the glass ceiling and be uh, pastors in churches and, and bishops in Catholic churches and, you know, everything that where women are unequal. It's just wrong and it needs to be righted. So we did it to cleanse our own souls and to make a statement to the culture that gender inequity is basically um, a, um, a pathology. And hopefully we have awakened from that trance and into at least a smidgen more uh, health as a result of that. 
So it, it, um, so her name is where it belongs. Um, and, um, and, and, and is it, I, I call another thing. It's a justice, you know, social justice is when, when, when equity shows up. And so this is a, a relational justice or a partnership justice in which we're truly partners and she's not my helper. Um, yeah. she's a partner and we're equal in this project. Well, and for me, I was known for being a, being in the Hunt family and getting dividends, I started using dividends, and I'm known as a donor. And I'm, my work in feminism is my head, but Amaga is my heart, and um, yeah, that's 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 <clears throat> who I am, at my heart. And so, it's a beautiful experience getting to have my heart seen more and being more of a partnership. So, yeah. thank you for asking. Yeah, and just for me, it was super powerful to pull the book out of the wrapper and to see both of your names there. Like, I had a visceral experience, so, yeah, I did. Yeah, great. Yeah. Oh, very glad. And and I think it occurs to me while we're talking is, you know, you cannot really become without the resonating other. And so it's really helpful to me, and I think probably helpful to you, that people can say, yes, uh, you all are uh, equal partners, and Helen is an equal partner with you, makes her an equal partner. There's something about the resonance of you and the, and the public uh, to that that um, helps Helen integrate it. Otherwise, the disassociation is hard to overcome for, for both of us, because I was disassociated too. Yeah, and for me, this is a, a reminder, too, for everyone who's listening to just think about what you, in your relationship, what you are creating together and to acknowledge that the ways that we that we do create things or, or support each other, but even in the support, it's truly a co-creation. Things yes. wouldn't be possible without, right. and, and that's the beauty of it, right, is we get to yeah. create amazing things that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. And you're co-creating each other all the time. That's like you create a baby together, then you co-create each other as parents, and we're, every interaction changes us. So we're constantly co-creating. So, but we don't know it, and, and, but it's so subtle, but it is, it is the primary reality, we think. Yeah. So thank you for asking. My pleasure. And thank you both for, for being here and being willing to talk about the theory, uh, you know, the mind stuff and the heart stuff and to share um, some of your own personal journey. It's super powerful and, and such a treat to be able to talk to you again here for Relationship Alive. And for us, Neil. Thank, thank you. you. We love talking to you. My pleasure. Read your uh, newsletters every time they come out. Do you? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Well, hopefully you've been entertained lately. <laughs> we keep up with you. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. 
And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word passion, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.